Let's go to the Lord right in prayer. We've got a lot to cover, but it's just such. I love, love, love this tech. And, uh, well, pray with me, would you please? Lord, I want to thank you so much for the blessing of being able to be in your presence and to sing to you, even with a warbled kind of out of sync voice. But Lord, I just want to thank you that I could just, we could just turn to you and we could seek you and know you want to speak to us tonight. And it is the cry of our heart, Lord, that you would speak there, that we could really genuinely hear you, especially when we look at a text like this. So Lord, please let us hear you tonight, how you want to speak to us, how you want to address us. And Lord, let us learn what we need to learn tonight. In Jesus' name, Lord, let your word come alive. May we have so much fun in your word. Captivate us in your word. And Lord, equip us and train us for every good work you've preordained. And Lord, we just want to tell you thank you for being here. Have your way. In Jesus' name. Amen. Like always, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority. It's roughly 863 B.C., roughly 3,000 miles away from here, and the most wicked king to date in the northern empire of Israel is ruling. His name is Ahav. He's the son of a king named Omri. He marries the daughter of a Sidonian psycho high priest, Ethbaal, which means with Baal, which is the false god of the Sidonians, who murders the king for the throne, her dad does. She, Jezebel, that's the princess, lovely little princess she is, goes on a hiring spree and then on a murder spree. A hiring spree, she hires 850 false prophets of Baal and Asherah. Asherah, by the way, is the false god of pleasure. So you, um, you don't have to let your imagination go far to guess what they did in their particular service, uh, services. In this hurricane of madness, God sends a voice to the people. He's a hairy belted Tishbite. He comes in unannounced and he comes in at the word of the Lord. The first thing we learn about the guy is he sort of shows up out of nowhere. He's a Tishbite named Eliyahu, or we might say Elijah. And he shows up because God told him to come. And I'd like you to realize that up to this point, we have seen a heroic Elijah. We've seen a guy that basically God said, Elijah, go go talk to the king. And imagine, and again, this is a wicked, unrepentant, outspokenly so king. He is setting up false idols and false temples all over the area of Israel. And imagine what it would be like if God just spoke to you. I mean, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it's like, Adam, I'm calling you to go and run up to the queen and tell her there's going to be no rain until you say so. I mean, that's kind of the idea here. And understand he had his own secret service. He had his own everything. But somehow this guy gets audience and he'll be, he, he hears the voice of God tell him to do that. So he does it. So he goes and he tells him. And then God tells him again as he's listening. He tells him, now get out and run. So he runs. So the guy just kind of shows up and says, it's not going to rain until I say so. And then he's like, okay. And then he runs. Now, at that, there is a drought, three and a half years. And at the word of the Lord, in that time, he now only runs, but he heads to two specific places. And each of those prepares him for kind of the, well, to be honest, one of the greatest moment in his ministry that we have recorded because he has this massive face-off, and that's kind of the idea. The first place he goes is to the brokherit. If you remember, it means cutting. Uh, he's fed by ravens, bread and flesh. He's refreshed at the brook, and he awaits basically the next word of the Lord. He doesn't go anywhere until God tells him. So he, the Lord told him to go there. He went there, and he waits for God's next word. He is listening. As it's the case, it doesn't come until the brook completely dries up. 
Now, God, again, is fashioning him for the face-off of 1 Kings 18, our last chapter. Uh, and so the first thing he needs to do is cut away. He cuts away at that stuff, and he'll do that in your life too. The moment you say yes to Jesus, he's going to cut away at stuff in your life that you just really just doesn't fit within the Christian walk. So the word of the Lord finally comes, and he tells him your next move is to the least likely place he would have imagined, a place called Zerophath, which means the crucible. So God takes you from chiseling you on the outside to purifying you on the inside through the fire. The crazy place about this is this is, in essence, the home of that crazy princess, Jezebel. So probably the last place the king would actually expect to find him. And he's cared by a least likely person, a Sidonian widow, who in essence has watched her bread dwindle like Elijah's watched his brook dwindle. And she was about to cook her last biscuit and die with her son. But God had bigger plans to sustain not only Elijah, but in essence to sustain, hear me, to sustain all that will come near him. God is showing Elijah through all of this in the crucible that those that are willing to stand with him are going to be actually saved through this. Now again, while all this is happening, Queen Jezebel, on the other hand, is going on a murder spree, killing all of the prophets of God that we know of. Now imagine some of those might have been Elijah's friends. And it only takes one friend to get killed by someone to radically change your world. Now we don't know how many she kills, but we do know she does, in essence, commit propheticide. And she does it with vigor and purpose. And again, faithfully in time, not a moment too soon, the word of the Lord comes again. I remind you, he is now in Sidon, in Zerfath, and he is waiting again for the next call of the Lord. He's listening. Eliza has a showdown to attend to, and God tells him, now it's time. Now, as it's the case, Elijah is a man who's been listening. He, he heard the word of the Lord, and it brought him to the king in the first place. He heard the word of the Lord, and it brought him out. He heard of the word of the Lord, and it brought him to the brook Harit. He heard the word of the Lord, and it brought him to Zerophath. He heard the word of the Lord, and it brought him to, to stand toe-to-toe against the prophets of Baal and Asherah. As a matter of fact, in the last chapter, what he says to the people in the face-off is, he says, let it be known today that you are the God of Israel, and I am your servant, and I have done all of these things at your word. Now, up to this point, we have this massive response. God, of course, blasts the sacrifice, and everyone's like, okay, your God's the real one, Elijah. And that's what we got. We don't have a total repentance, but we do have that everyone is convinced that that God's the real God. Now, up to this point, I remind you, Elijah's been an, a massively awesome guy to follow. However, chapter 19, everything changes. Look at verse 1. And Ahab told Yezbel all that Elijah Eliyahu had done and how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent messengers to Eliyahu saying, So let the gods do to me. This is the dramatized version. And more also, if I do not make your life in the life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. And when he saw that, he rose and ran for his life. He went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. And then he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came and he sat under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die. And he said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. The same guy who unapologetically faces off with the king back at the beginning of chapter 17 says it's not going to rain. The same guy who challenged the whole prophetic staff of Jezebel in a spiritual gang fight now flees. What the heck happened? Well, I got to be honest to tell you, it's these moments we really appreciate. It is these moments 
when these great heroes of faith throughout Scripture, they have this moment where they really, in essence, show the cracks in their, well, they show the cracks in their walk in such a way that we relate to them. It is this magnificent weakness that we see in a moment like this that draws us to Elijah at those moments when we're really struggling. Because as much as we see these great victories and we could say, well, God is the God of victory and we see it in, in Elijah's chutzpah as he stands against all of this, it's this moment where we're like, oh, when it tells us that Elijah was a man with the same passions and challenges with us, this makes more sense. So what in the world happened here? I mean, the guy went from, from just being the rock in front of people to being the greatest sissy to the point of actually just wanting God to kill him. He's like, well, I'm not going to commit suicide, but God, you could just kill me if you want to, and that would be just fine with me. You ever have that? You're like, God, I know that it's a sin, so I'm not going to kill myself, but to be honest, the way things kind of look right now, could you just kill me? Dad, we'd both be, we'd win, right? We'd win. Well, let me just make it clear. Notice Verse 3, how it starts. It says, when he saw. You see, every time he's listening, he's victorious. But when he stops listening and he starts looking, he falls. When our focus shifts, we begin to sink. Remember Peter stepping out of the boat in the middle of a storm in Matthew 14. Jesus is walking on the waves, and it's one thing to say Jesus is walking on water, and yeah, that is cool, but there's so much more to the story than just Jesus being above the water. The water was waves at this moment. The wind was boisterous, and we were in the middle of a storm, and we were going nowhere. I mean, the first time we were in a storm, we just honestly, because there are two storms the disciples get in. The first storm we get in, we just think we're going to die. And we actually, Jesus is actually on the boat. And we're, we get to the point where we're like, don't you even care? I'm going to die here. What is up with you? That's the beginning. But this time through, Jesus isn't in the boat. And they're just rowing. But they don't, anywhere, we don't read that they think they're going to die. At least that's not the way it's recorded. The way it's recorded is they're just trying really hard to get to the other side. And they're just not getting there. Can I say, this is what happens as we grow and mature in our walk with Jesus. Some of you, maybe you've prayerfully graduated to this point. But you know, like in the beginning, those trials hit you and you just think, I'm not going to make it through this one, man. This is just, I don't see how I could possibly live this. God, I'm just going to die in this where are you, Lord? And I don't get this. I don't get how all of this could come at once. This makes no sense to me. This is so overwhelming. I, I just think you're just gonna have to, you're just gonna have to take me because I'm not gonna make it. But as we mature and the Lord actually shows us that we are we do make it, we start graduating to the next level of storm. The next level of storm isn't necessarily one that's worse. It's just one now that we're convinced the whole issue is just, God, can you get me to the other side of it? I mean, I know that you can get me through because you got me through the last time on that crazy one I thought I was going to die. So I know you can get me through. So could you get me through 
can you just get me to the other side? I'm ready. I am so ready to be done with this one and so ready to start on something new. So when Jesus is walking on the water, he's not just walking on water, he's walking on waves. Very different. I kind of, I guess it's my image from coming where from I came from, but I kind of get the idea here that Jesus is barefoot surfing, which just sounds so epic. I'm so into that idea. It's like Jesus doesn't even have to pop up on a board. He's just kind of walking. He's like, hey guys, what's up? All right. You know, and, and I get the idea. And the point of it isn't just that Jesus is walking on water. It's that the entire storm that they're watching, that they're, that the boat's sinking now because of. And they're getting nowhere because of. Their life is totally, they're exhausted and they're trying so hard and they're getting nowhere. And yet that whole storm that's keeping them right in that place is still underneath the feet of Jesus. It's not just, hey, it's cool, you walk on water. That's just really scientifically weird. It's the fact that this whole thing that I'm fighting is still under your feet, Jesus. So Peter says, hey, if that really is you, because they just scream like little girls at first, and we read Jesus would have just walked right by. Because the idea is he's just waiting for them to call out to him, just like last time. This time it's just that he's in a different place to find them. And uh, in the first case, he was in the boat with them. The second case, he's in the storm with them. So they look and they see him, and he's, you know, and so Peter goes, Well, if that really is you, you command me to go out of the boat. And who came up with that idea? It wasn't like Jesus said, Any of you want to try a really cool little faith test? You know, and this is one of those where you close your eyes and fall backwards. This one's cooler than that. It seems like Peter came up with this crazy idea as if he went, whoa, if I really take your command, Jesus, that storm will be underneath me too. So you just call on me. Now understand, faith is never jumping out and telling God to catch you. Somehow people get this crazy idea that, that faith is just Jesus being sort of like always having bail money from all of the stupid, stupid choices we make. But really, if we're going to be honest, it's what we read with Peter. It's stepping out on the clear command of God. So, so here's Peter. He's like, if it's you, you command me and I'll come out. So Jesus says, come. So Peter starts to come and he steps out of the boat and he begins to walk on top of the waves. But then we read in Matthew fourteen thirty. but when he saw that the wind was boisterous. He became afraid. He was afraid and he began to sink. And he cried out, saying, or translated, Lord, save me. Now, again, the point is, is that faith is going to drive you to listen before you look. When John speaks in his testimony in 1 John, He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which our eyes have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Well, that life was manifested and we have seen and heard and we declare to you that word. And he tells us that he writes these things so that you would have joy. But first, he says, he writes these things so that we would have fellowship with him because truly his fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And he says, I write this so that your joy would be full. Understand, John started with this, that which we heard. And then we looked. And then we studied. That's the two look words, looked upon. I heard it. I looked. I guess I heard God. And then I looked and I saw him. And then I studied him. And then I touched him. He goes, I want you to have that experience. The problem is, is we try to find it with our eyes and in doing so, we don't listen. 
Second Corinthians five seven says we walk by faith, not by can anyone finish that? Not by sight. Now they say, well, is that a blind faith? No, it's a, it's a listening faith first. The way that it's portrayed in a blind faith is that you don't even listen. You just receive information at first and then, then you shut yourself off. But if we're going to follow the Lord, we need to listen. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.18 that while we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Everything we see here, everything we see here is, go, is temporary. That includes the shells, the tents, the jerseys that we have on right now. You are not a person with a soul. You are a soul with a body. And the body is going to be cashed in. Now, for some of you, that's probably terrible news because you still got it in pretty good shape. For me, I am so ready for 2.0. Bring it on. So faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. In First Peter 1, it says in verse 8, whom, though you don't see him right now, you love. Though you don't see him yet, you believe and you rejoice with an inexpressible joy full of glory. When Jesus finally reveals himself to his disciples and he finally shows himself, Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless I actually see and I can stick my hand in the nail holes. Jesus says to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about us. Because we're the ones who, I mean, and maybe Jesus did appear in your bedroom somewhere and he said, hey, you really want to touch? If you really want it, go at it. But for me, it wasn't the case. To be honest, my ears were open and God just really touched my heart and it was just so obvious that he's the real, real deal. Yet Elijah now, he stopped listening and he started looking. And you know what happened the when he stopped listening? He started fearing and that won't happen to any of us. And there'll always be somebody to try to bring your attention to the world. You're probably aware of that, right? You know, where someone's like, oh, you know, you should have you heard the news about, you know, I'm sure that there's probably somebody going to attack some terrorist that's going to attack the Christmas market. You know, hey, if you really belong to Jesus, you should not be concerned about your own life. I would be more, I mean, if you really thought that there was a terrorist attack imminent, I would like it to think it would inspire us to people who don't know Jesus. Because if we stand before the Lord, we're good. But what about them? And I just think there's something crazy about that thought. And please hear me on this. Because there are situations in your life and mine that will happen that are going to be way beyond our understanding. The loss of a loved one. Some circumstance going completely awry some radical change in your life. And at that moment, you know what we do? We look for answers. Isn't that what it says? I mean, that's the way we say it, right? I'm just looking for an answer in this. We don't say I'm listening for an answer. You know what's amazing? Is we often abandon what we know for what we don't know. At a moment like that, we go, you know, I just want God to show me why. Why this happened. As if God ever does anything for one reason. 
you do realize that God is multitasking over a trillion things at this very moment, including holding all the cells of your body together so that the universe doesn't explode from them. I mean, I'm really thankful for that, by the way, at the moment, because we have work to do. But consider the fact that he's, you know, he's keeping all of the planets in orbit and there's so many things in the gravity and there's so many things God's doing and everything he does, he knows ripples to a billion degrees. And then in all of that, we can kind of assume that we could ask God why this happened and God's supposed to give us some simple answer as if he only did something for a single purpose. That's not my God. How about yours? He's way too complex and brilliant for that. And the crazy part is we abandon the things we do know, which is that he's good and he's going to work it to our good because all things work to the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We abandon the things we know for what we don't know. And now we go on this quest to go find some answer, but we've abandoned the stuff that's already the truth. So we are open to being misled by the enemy because he's going to build, he's going to sway us from the things that we forgot about now. But it's like, you know, I don't understand, but I do know that God is good. And to say as Job, even if he slay me, I'm going to praise him. That's a crazy and cool place to be. So hear me on this. If we had looked, we would have saw this coming. Those who were back in the last chapter, if you remember, Elijah first approaches a guy named Obadiah, and as he approaches him, he's like, go tell your boss that Elijah's here and he wants to see him. Because he's going to set up that showdown. And Avadia goes, oh, what did I do wrong that you're going to get me killed, man? I know what you're going to do. This is a loose paraphrase, but search it on you. And he's like, dude, I know what you're going to do. You're going to, I'm going to go there and say, oh, Elijah's over there. And then he's going to come and you're not going to be there. The Spirit's just going to pull you away. And then he's going to kill me. Dude, what did I do? Didn't you know that when, when Queen Jezebel was killing all those prophets, I took a hundred of them and I hid them 50 to a cave. That's how many caves. Two. Yeah, that was simple math, right? Just checking you here. Just making sure you're alive. Okay, so imagine he's like, so imagine Elijah is hearing this, or you would think, look at, there are at least a hundred prophets left because I personally hid them so Jezebel can't kill them. Dude, I'm not the guy that you want to set up to, to, to kill here. I'm a good guy, is what Obadiah is saying. And Elijah's like, look at, I'll, I'll wait right here. Don't worry about it. And there he goes, because you know we looked everywhere and we couldn't find you. So I guess probably the rumor was when we got close, the spirit just picked him up, ha-ha, peekaboo, and off he went. So you couldn't find him. That was kind of the idea. So with that in mind, finally the king shows up. But hear that. Somewhere if I were to listen to what Obadiah said, I'm like, well, there's still 100 prophets left. However, when, when Elijah stands in front of all of the people at the showdown, he says in 1 Kings 18.22, well, look at it yourself. If you have your Bibles, it says, Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. The Baal's prophets are 450. Now, to this day, we use a term from this, and it's called the Elijah complex. And the idea of it is when you get the Elijah complex, you just kind of feel like you're the only guy or girl left on the planet doing what God told you to. And that's kind of where Elijah is. But if he had been listening, obviously, he would have known there were still 100 to, you know, 50 in a cave. So here's the question. How do you get a guy that's in this place now back to where he belongs? I mean... I remind you, this was the guy who just took down the entire prophetic staff of Jezebel. This was the guy who, at his own command, held, withheld the reign for three and a half years against the king. 
And now this guy's basically just wanting death. How do you get a guy like this back? You see somebody and they're like, man, they were heroic as they were listening to the Lord and great things were happening and people were getting saved and people were being delivered and, and healed and people were being raised up and transformed and all this great stuff happens and then something happens and they just so freak out that now they're just like, forget it, it's over. The good days are behind us. You know, there's that kind of concept. But look, if God was done with you, he would have taken you home. If you're still breathing, God's still got plans. And you're probably aware of the fact God doesn't, when he assembles things, see, there are no spare parts. It isn't like he's like, oh, how did this get left over? And, you, and he, when he's assembling his body, you're part of it. There's no spare part. You're not like a wart on the body of Christ. You're not like a mole or something that really should be removed. You are an integral part. You just may not know it yet. So please understand, if you're still breathing, God's got plans. And please hear me, if this is where you're at at this moment, where you're just kind of grappling for anything, because somehow in it you had bigger plans and then something went crazy and you saw so much that as you close your eyes, all it is is what you see and you can't hear like you could before. Well, look at what God does. Verse 5. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him. And he said to him, Arise and eat. Well, then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked with on coals and a jug of water, a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. First time around, let me ask you, what is the first sense of his five senses he experiences? According to verses 5 and 6. Touch. Don't miss that. It was a sense of feeling. What woke him up? An angel touched him. Let's be honest. Here you are running for your life and someone touches you. You're going to wake up. And then the angel says, arise and eat. And then what does he do? Then he looks. Notice the two things that Elijah's in there. His feelings and his, and his sight. I want to warn you, feelings often can force you to try to be guided by your sight and to stop listening. You know what it's like when your feelings take over. And that's where Elijah's at. His, he's looked and it's fed his feelings and his feelings are feeding what he looks. And now every time he looks, all he sees is fear because that's what he feels. And therefore, he starts searching for evidence to justify that fear and he's finding it everywhere. The angel, he feels the food he sees. I don't understand, so I start looking instead of listening. So he gets up, he eats, and he drinks, and he lays down again. Verses 7 and 8. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So we arose and ate and drank and he went in the sight of that strength, sorry, in the strength of that food, forty days and forty nights, as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, what sense is missing in verses seven and eight that we had in five and six? What didn't he do in verses seven and eight that he did in five and six? Remember, the angel touched him. He woke up, told him to eat. And then, what did Elijah do on the first time? He looked. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. The angel touches him, wakes him up, tells him to eat and drink. Notice he doesn't go looking for it this time. He just trusts 
and then begins to eat. Now, unless the angel's way glowing, and that's possible, but it doesn't say he is here, then he might just be reaching in the dark for food. But notice how the angel is already trying to get him to stop being guided by his sight and to start listening more. Do you get that? And where does he wind up after 40 days? At Horeb. Try this word. Horeb. Okay, but it's... Yeah, so try not to look straight at someone just in case. Choreb. Try that. Choreb. Come on, it's fun. Choreb. Yeah, that's pretty good. It means dry, barren desert, which is really where Elijah's at at this moment. Ironically, Elijah's withheld rain for three and a half years. The rain has come strong enough to flood, and yet the only thing that's dry now is Elijah. No, Mount Choreb. Why is that so important? I'll tell you why. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses was tending the flock with his, of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, he led the flock to the back of the desert and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and it was there that he saw the burning bush. Then God told him that he would return to this place and lead the people out. In Exodus chapter 17, God said, Behold, I will stand before you on the rock in Horeb and you'll strike the rock and the water will come out. But we know Horeb is another name, Sinai. Sinai, by the way, like Sinai, means thorny. This is the mountain for which Moses went up for 40 days and nights and received the Ten Commandments. And while he did that on the thorny mountain, and I find it interesting that God uses these two words. He uses a word that means dry and barren, and he uses a word that means of the thorn. I find that interesting because when he talks about the sacrifice, it's of the thorn. Because there's another hill where God's going to take his own son and he will wear a crown of those thorns to pay for the price of our own curse. But while he's up at the place of the thorn, the mount of the thorn, the children down in Exodus 33 are stripping themselves of their ornaments down at Mount Choreb at dryness, and they're making a golden calf out of it. Do you see why God's calling that Choreb? This is how dryness happens. You start replacing God with something tangible. When they went on the day's journey from there, 11 days between there and the, the border to cross the Jordan to enter into the Promised Land, but they don't go, God tells us it was 11-day journey from Choreb from a dryness, and of course, they don't go the first time. Now, if that's a little bit much for you, consider the fact that that's what God's telling us here, is that he winds up basically to the place where Moses got the Ten Commandments and where he got the call in the first place. So Moses, I'm sorry, in this case, Elijah's run. He's run for 40 days and 40 nights, kind of like Moses was up the mountain for that long. And he's run because an angel has given him supernatural food. I don't know about you, but I'm thinking this food sounds great. And there he went into a cave and he spent the night in that place. Verse 9, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now notice God is, if he's in a cave, that means he's probably not seeing anything. He's probably not feeling much. But the word of the Lord's trying to get to him again. And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant torn down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. 
Now you get the idea. He's having a party here. It's a special kind of party. It's the party that we call a pity party. And you're probably aware when you throw a pity party, don't even hand out invitations. Nobody wants to come. And But God showed up anyways. And God showed up and he's like, look at I'm all alone here. Come on, man. I've been faithful. I've really, I've done what you told me. And now someone's trying to kill me. What are you going to do about that? God says, go and stand on that mountain before the Lord. Now what we're going to find is he's still in the cave, so he's really not listening like he should, but just the same. And behold, the Lord passed by. Don't miss the fact that the Lord passed by first. And then it was a great and strong wind that tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after that, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after that earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. God is trying to rip out of Elijah all of this. All of these things feelings that he has now and I was being driven by his sight and God does it systematically because he knows how to perform the surgery to take one thing out at a time as necessary. So get the idea here. You're in a cave. You're feeling sorry for yourself. You feel like you're the only guy left to stand against the world. And so what are you doing though? You're the only guy left. You're hiding in a cave. Sounds like a bad place to be if you really are the only guy left. I mean, if you think you're going to die anyways, I would think go down with a blaze of glory, man. Give it your best shot. If you're the only guy left, testify, man. Testify on those while those bullets fly. Because if you're the last guy, at least that'll be a testimony. I mean, let's face it. Don't you want to have be in your best moment when you die? Let's just be honest. The last thing I want to be is in the middle of some stupid, egregious sin and then be like, oh, oh. Well, now I'm in front of you. Oh, I really, that was, that was, I didn't mean that. You know, I mean, is that really where you want to be? And I realize at this moment, Elijah's kind of, he's in the last place he should be. If he really does think he's the last man on earth that's doing this, he's in the last place he needs to be. And he's one, he's hid in a cave at this point. You know, he's, he's very far away. And as that's the case, and by the way, I kind of get the idea that his running was supernatural. He's already run supernaturally once before this when he outran Ahab in his chariot because this is quite a bit of a distance for a guy to run and just the same now he's hiding and god goes okay no look at we're going to need to strip this out of you we're going to need to strip this out of you so let's do this first of all sit here and watch this but he kind of still just waits at the cave and he's kind of looking out and the lord passes by now i don't know whether he sees that or not but then three things follow and what's clear is that the three things have one thing in common what do those three things have in common you were all looking at me. Yeah, God's not in them. So what's the first of them? A great and mighty wind. And we're not just talking about kind of wind like we get, you know, when we're kind of standing near the Thames, so it is just kind of where our bones ache. But we're talking about a kind of wind that tore into the mountains. Notice plural. So not just the mountain he's standing on. He can actually look and watch it start to tear apart mountains in front of him. And it says it tore apart the, the, the mountains and it broke rocks in pieces before the Lord. What kind of wind breaks rocks? Yeah, I mean, I come from originally from Chicago. They call it the Windy City. And in all of the wind, I watched that wind blow people backwards. But I've never seen it break rocks. I've seen it blow pieces of, of building off of the building, but I've never seen it break rocks. 
And so imagine this is the first thing is that God's taking him to this place where it's like, oh, and, and please understand God's stripping this out of us today as well. And it's like, okay, there's this wind and I just need to feel that wind. God, if I could just feel that wind, I feel like I'm the only person, but if I could just feel that wind, I know I'm going to be okay. We're going to be good in all of this. But it says just because the wind is blowing does not mean God's there. Now, Jesus had said in John chapter 3, verse 8, that the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You can't tell where it comes from or where it goes, but so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. I get the idea of this. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came down upon 120 that were praying, what was the sound the Holy Spirit made when it came down upon those people? It was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And I get the idea that there are times where it's like, I realize the issue is that I'm not listening to God, but instead of not listening to God, and I feel distant for it, and now I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed because as I stop considering and focusing on God, now I'm focusing on my circumstances, and they look really big because they're bigger than me. They're just not bigger than Him. And now these circumstances get bigger and bigger because the only thing I'm comparing them to is me. So I am way freaking out. I am super freaking out as I see all of this happen. And I'm like, wow, this is bad. This is bad. And at this point, the only time I look at God, I'm like, where are you in this? But he's like, what do you mean, where am I? You're not looking for me. You're just looking at it. And so I'm like, all right, God, I just need your Holy Spirit. I just want to feel your Holy Spirit. And if I could feel, if I could get the shakes and the shivers and the holy, woo, I know. And, and, and I'm like, you know, and it's like, so I'm going to go and I'm going to, oh, where is the most charismatic church I can find? If I can find one where a guy just waves his jacket and we all fall over and flop like fish, then I know. And God's like, just because that's happening does not mean I'm there. Is that what you're looking for? To get right with me? Because the problem is not that. The problem is you're not listening. So here I am in a rough circumstance, and I'm like, God, I need a supernatural experience. And God goes, actually, what you need is a listening experience. That's very different. You're like, that sounds so basic. God's like, yeah. So after the win, what was the next one? See, now you got to look. What is it? It's an earthquake. Oh, God, I tell you what, we'll be okay. I just need to see the earth move. If I could watch those mountains fall, if I could watch all the obstacles obliterated, if I could see my circumstances pummeled in front of me, not just budged, but blowed up. If all my circumstances could change, then I know you're in the midst of this. And God's like, just because the circumstances change and you watch the world move around you does not mean I'm in the middle of it. That's not what you need. And in a moment where I'm overwhelmed, I'm like, God, just get rid of the circumstances and we'll be good. God's like, the circumstances are not the problem. It's your ears. That's why seven times in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, it says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I realize that is one of the things I will do when I'm overwhelmed. I need a supernatural experience. We'll be good. God's like, you need to listen. I'm like, well, then I just need all my circumstances to change. Hey, God, we'll be totally cool as long as all my circumstances change. And God's like, no, it isn't about moving the earth for you. It's about listening. Verse 12. What was the third? After the wind and after the earthquake? Now you knew I was going to ask, so you might be more ready. What's the third? The fire. And I get this. When I look in, and I, just, and I can just only tell you in my own life, 
because I'm, you're probably aware, I'm probably not the chilliest guy you've ever met. I'm kind of a passionate fella. And there are times where, you know, you get overwhelmed and then you feel like a zombie. You ever have that? You know, like, you can, I could just look at some of you and I know some of you, you got the fire. And life gets really rough and at first you just get all cranky so you're kind of firing in a bad way and you're just open firing on everyone you love around you because they just happen to be nearby. And sooner or later you just feel like, oh, forget it, I just hate life. I'm just gonna, can I just lay in bed until like 2040? And you're like, if I could just get that passion back, God, then things will be better. If I can just get that passion back. You know, when I used to wake up and read your word and I used to wake up and pray. I've got to tell you, though, though I'm not sleeping much these days and that's why I'm probably behaving like this. But uh, I'm having amazing times of prayer because uh, what else are you going to do when you lay in bed and it's four in the morning? Other than listen to some guys sing a church song with screaming goats behind it. Uh, My friends send me those. Thank you, friends. Uh, You get to this place where you're like, God, I just... If I could just get that passion back, that fire back in my bones, just that fire. Because you do realize when Jeremiah talked about a fire shut up in his bones, it was my word. You do know that, right? You know, it's interesting. It is the raw, when, what God tells you, he says, is, isn't my word the hammer that breaks the rocks into pieces? And he says that though heaven and earth may be moved my word will never pass away. The one thing that all three of these seem to have in common is that God's word is the truth for these things that can be, in essence, fabricated. It's like, man, just because I have a burning does not mean God's in the middle of it. Especially in my case, because I love spicy food, so I get a burning quite often. But you're probably aware there are cults out there that'll say, just read our literature and if you get a burning in your bosom, then it must be true. And what I read from this is just because there's a fire does not mean God's in the middle of it because God's not in the middle of this fire. So let me ask you, is that what you're trying to do tonight? God, if you can just give me the right spiritual experience or if I, can, if I come, hey, God, this is totally extra credit. It's a Tuesday night. I didn't just come on Sunday. It's a Tuesday night Clearly, you've got to do something about the circumstance now, right? Then we'll be better. Or, well, God, can you reignite my passion? If we could just sing another song or have a bigger band or get it louder or whatever. But after all those three things that we read that the Lord was not in, what's the fourth thing? What does it say here? I still small voice. You do realize what God was doing. He was stripping away all of these other things to get Elijah back to listening. That was the point. It's like, Elijah, you've been busy looking for the wind, watching, waiting for the world to move. You've been busy trying to find that fire. You're looking for these things. But you need to be listening for my voice. And the problem is, is if you're busy trying to get in a very loud wind or you're busy trying to get around a big earthquake. Now, have any of you ever been in an earthquake other than me? I've been in one and that was a 7.2 and I had to dive over my desk because I had these, these big, uh, like 3,000, 2,000 year old uh, vases 
that were up on a bookshelf behind me. And they were, they were probably about, you know, 20 kilos a piece. And when the earthquake happened, those things came down right at where I was. So it was, I was actually very impressed. I could scale my desk that quickly. Uh, but it killed people in our neighborhood. And it's like, if you just imagine standing here and all of a sudden the whole ground just goes, shoop, and just moves like five meters this way. I mean, that's what it feels like. And it's like, it's, it's not even like being on a bus. It'd be like if someone taking the bus, picking it up and going, and then going, and then, and then just the way you kind of get your footing, it's like, one more time, and then, and you know, once it stops, you know what you're thinking, when's it going to happen again? When's it gonna, and often there are, there are aftershocks, often after those things. And the reason I say that is, is that what would it be like to be in that? The problem is with, and have you ever been around a big fire? They are so unbelievably loud. And this is the one thing these three things have in common as well. They could be so loud, you can't hear a still small voice. So you could be busy trying to get that super spiritual experience. You could be busy trying to get things to go so moving. And, you can, and they're trying to get it all moved. And you could try to get to that place where you're just trying to hype up the passion thing. And you could do all of that. And it could distract you from listening. And that's the thing he's trying to do is get you to hear. And notice it could have just been that God could shout it here, right? But instead, it was a still, small voice. And for me to hear a still, small voice, I have to get still. And I can't be still when I'm diving in a big wind. And I can't be still when I'm in the middle of an earthquake. And I can't be still when a raging fire is around me. And I have to get still enough to listen. And interesting... When Elijah heard it, notice in verse 13, finally Elijah is listening again. He wrapped his face in a mantle, in his mantle. Now you realize, for him to do that means that he is reassuming his role as a prophet. He quit just a moment ago. He dropped out. But for him to rewrap himself in the mantle, or for him to say, yes, sir, I'm back where you want me. And yet, he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. So notice he didn't leave the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? But he's still got this problem. And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Has Elijah ever sought the Lord at all about feeling this lonely? We don't read anywhere that Elijah's ever prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, could you explain to me? Could you help me? I need to hear something from you about this situation. You know what the Lord says? And we read these verses. We'll build on them next week, but we're, not, we're now just to the point of done. It says, The Lord said to him, Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazazel as king over Syria. And then you, then you shall anoint Yehu, who names your kid? Yehu, uh, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and, Eli, and Elishama, Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abba which sounds very Hawaiian to me. And you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Do you realize God's like, you wanted to quit? Well, I'm going to help you here. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hatzael, Yehu will kill. Yahoo, I get to kill you. And whoever escapes the sword of Yahoo, Elisha will kill. And yet, notice, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed to Baal in every mouth that has not kissed him. 
It's like, Elijah, you think you're the only guy, but you know, it's because you're looking. But if you had asked me, I could have told you, there are 7,000 people that stand with you, Elijah, and you just don't even know it because you're too busy looking and you're not busy listening. If we'd be busy, and here tonight, if you look to me, you're going to find a very faulty model. You guys are aware of that. I've never portrayed myself as perfect. And that doesn't mean that I'm in the middle of some egregious sin. But the whole point is, is that you know I would never tell you keep your eyes on me other than this. Follow me as I follow Christ. My challenge is let's run and let's charge after Christ with all that we've got. But to do that, we're going to have to listen. And when things don't make sense, we listen. And when things get scary, we listen. And when things seem overwhelming, we have to get still enough to listen. Because until we do that, let's be honest, we can busy ourselves way too much to listen. And if we would listen, we could hear him say, you are not alone. There's no reason for you to be afraid. I'm your refuge. I'm your rock. Jezebel is not going to wind up killing Elijah. In the end of it all, Jezebel is going to wind up, you know, she's going to have a real rough end. She's going to be tossed out, spoiler alert, she's going to be tossed out of a window by her own bedchamber maids, in essence. Uh, and then ultimately, dogs are just going to lick her blood. Really sweet scene. But, uh, yeah, there's something to sleep on. And she's all made herself up, you know. She's, hey, check you out. Uh, so she's all dolled up for the dogs. All of that to say that that it's these moments where is there something in your life where you feel like you've like sought the Lord, but you're kind of seeking the Lord as a secondary principle where you're really not listening to what he has to say? You're like, God, just stop this thing. Move the earth right now. Change my circumstances. Change me in it, and so forth. And we're not actually listening to what the Lord really wants to, for us to learn and to hear and observe in, this, in, in his voice. I've learned this. When you just trust God's word, you never have to change your mind. And you're like, it's full of promises and peace and then he's going to work it to our good and that he's our rock and our refuge. And when the enemy comes like a flood against us, it's the Lord who raises up a standard. And there's no weapon formed against us that prosper. Now, that doesn't mean that we might not get killed. But man, if the worst thing that the devil can do to us is actually have somebody try to kill us, then we stand before the Lord exactly how did he win in that one? And my challenge to you as we go to prayer is that God would do what we sang in our last song before we started this. That we would let God speak to our hearts. But we didn't just say speak to my heart. We said, I'm listening. What if God is trying to speak to our heart but we're just not listening? And today, I just really believe the Lord wants to get us back to that place where we listen in faith and we go, Lord, you just tell me. But there's all these scary details yeah, there will always be scary details. The future is full of scary details because you don't know the future, but the one who speaks to you does. And if we listen to him, we can be okay. Would you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. And I want to thank you, Lord, for how even tonight you bring us, you strip away those things, Lord, to get us back to listening. And tonight in this room, I just pray, Lord, for myself and everyone else here. Lord, would you please put us in this place again where our ears 
are open to you in every way. That we would be still and know that you're God. You tell us in the nick of time, at the breaking of dawn, you come to our aid. And one thing we do know about the dawn is it always comes. No matter how, you know, long the night appears to be as the winter kind of steps in and and declares itself here in uh, December to come. Dawn still always comes. There will always be a breaking of dawn here. As long as the earth is. And you come to help. You're not in a moment too soon. You're never too early. But you're also never too late. But Lord, at those moments we confess to you that the darkness can really overwhelm us. Even though we're the light of the world and it shouldn't be dark around us. But we can put ourselves under a bushel. And we can focus on so many things we don't need to. But just remind us, Jesus, you died on the cross for us when we were your enemies. When we were sinners and enemies on our hearts and minds to you. Walking under the guidance of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's still at work in the sons of disobedience. And we were by nature children of wrath. And yet, Jesus, you still died for us. You took all of our sin and our shame and our muck and our filth and our nastiness and you nailed it to the cross and you paid for it in full. And when you were buried, it was left there. And when you rose, you didn't take it with you. And as we confess you as our Lord and Savior, as we cling to that truth, and as you sit now above all principality, power, might, dominion, and anything that is named, And we are in you above those things. Teach us to listen and be still. Because it is you, Lord. It is you who is constantly and ever victorious as Almighty. So Lord, right now, whatever the circumstances are that are in front of us, that that could create fear because we just don't know, whatever circumstances we're in the middle of right now because somehow we're a little confused and we just can't see through it. Help us, if there's one thing to see, help us to see you above the storm and help us to listen, to be still, and to know that you are God. If you could conquer the grave, Jesus, You certainly can conquer any situation in our lives. So Lord, let us out of here. Give us time to listen tonight, to turn our hearts to you and say, Lord, give me that place where I can get quiet without the interference of my cell phone, without the interference of people running in and distracting me. But someplace, Jesus, if you would have to go and find a secluded, abandoned area so you can have time with the Father, how much more do we? So help us to find that place where we can cry out to you and to listen. And I just want to thank you, Lord, that you bring us to that place where we can be still enough to hear your still, small voice. Thank you that you are ever constant and always faithful. May we recognize that in the heat of the storm and not just on the other end of it. 
So tonight we just want to say, we're yours again. Not because we have to, but because we want to. We're yours and we thank you for the life that you give us in exchange for the filth that we've given you. And I just pray tonight you would move us. That you would move us. In your word, you would move us. We don't need to have some massive supernatural experience. You're welcome to do so, but that's not what we're looking for. You don't, need to, you don't need to change every circumstance around us for us to recognize you're still in control. You don't have to put us in this place where we are reignited before hearing your word. It should be that your word reignites us because it's your truth that we stand on. Make us people of your word, I pray, with ears ever receptive to hear you as you lead us. Jesus, in your name we pray.